So here's my question. I'm, I'm wondering how you would rate yourself on your own personal ability, patience, and joy in waiting. So do you wait well? If you're anything like me, then you're terrible at waiting. I mean, let's just think of some fun examples, like waiting for the light to turn green, waiting for your meal at a fast food restaurant, waiting for your parents or your kids or your spouse to stop talking, leave an event, and go home, or waiting at Walmart when there's tons of people, the speed lane is broken, and there's only one cashier. Or waiting to find out if you got into your favorite school. Or waiting at the doctor's office during a medical emergency. Do you know they've done studies on things like that? So purposely put people in waiting rooms to see real doctors for real medical situations and then adjusted the waiting times from short to long. From almost immediate to over an hour. Just to see how people handle it. I can't even tell you how glad I am not to be a part of one of those studies. But do you know what one of the most important factors is to a person's ability to wait well? It's the perceived value of the visit. Meaning if the person was in some kind of unexplainable discomfort or medical situation, they were far more willing to wait well than if they were just there for a regular visit. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you're far more willing to wait for a doctor than for a sales clerk. You'll gladly stand in line longer to buy an iPad than a toothbrush. Or to get your car registered at the DMV than to pull into a packed drive through just for a cup of coffee. And the Bible plays this out, doesn't it? I mean, just think about Jacob and Rachel. That guy waited 14 years to get the girl of his dreams, Genesis 29. Or how about what the Bible says about waiting for babies to be born, John 16, 21. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she delivers the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, the waiting, or the sorrow, but has great joy because the baby is born. So there's specific situations in which we really do wait well, but they are few and far between. But what are they specifically? Well, waiting to see a doctor when you have a serious condition. Waiting in order to get married to the woman or man of your dreams. Waiting for a new baby to be born. And waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Because what specifically was the Lord Jesus talking about in John 16 when he referred to the anguish, the waiting and the sorrow, but the joy that comes when a new baby is born? He was talking about Christ's return. So all of that was in the context of Christ's death and departure. In fact, in John 14, 1, he said to his disciples, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's mansion are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. So most important this morning, I'm wondering if you're waiting well for Christ's return. Because Jesus is coming back. And the main question in our text is whether or not you'll be found waiting well. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is on page 1006. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. As you're turning, let me prepare you. That we'll be covering some ground this morning, not in terms of scripture or the amount of verses that we're looking at, but in terms of time. Because as you'll see on my outline, we're looking at both the already and the not yet realities of salvation. So salvation already, salvation not yet, and salvation forever. So looking all the way back to the Old Testament sacrifices, then to Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross, And then Christ's second coming. So we're spanning the entire spectrum of redemptive history. So with that in mind, follow along. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 22. The author says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly Since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. For him. I want you to notice how this entire section has to deal with purification. Verse 22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. In this context, he tells us what the everything is the tabernacle, the vessels, the mercy seat, the people, even the book of the covenant. And this sprinkling of blood was not optional. Verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, meaning the earthly tabernacle, had to be purified. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because the earthly tabernacle was defiled. But what exactly defiled it? Well, the people's sin, of course. So it was necessary for these earthly sacrifices to take place. Let me just ask the question, what exactly did these sacrifices actually accomplish. I mean, last week we were told about the ceremonially, ceremonial washings of the body, chapter 9, verse 10, and the purification of the flesh, chapter 9, verse 13. 
But what did all these sacrifices and all this blood actually accomplish in and of themselves? Well, I would suggest very little. In fact, nothing. Why would I say that? Well, because chapter 10, verse 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So they didn't actually accomplish anything, or at least not with regard to taking away sin, but instead their purpose was to point forward to the Lord Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. So they're there simply to teach us all about the absolute need for sacrifice, the need for blood to be shed, but specifically his blood to be shed. So they're the example, the illustration as the A, inferior sacrifice, constantly pointing forward over and over and over again, year after year, pointing to B, the superior sacrifice. Verse 23 says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now this is a little bit troubling isn't it? Because it sure sounds like heaven is defiled and is in need of cleansing. Verse 23 says the heavenly things need to be purified with better sacrifices. Why is that? Is heaven defiled? Is there sin in the presence of God? Now there's different views on this. Some have suggested it's because Satan was there, specifically pointing to Job chapter 1 and his interaction with God. Others have said it's related to Ephesians chapter 6 and the reality that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil who are located where, according to Ephesians 6? In the heavenly places. So some have suggested that heaven needs cleansing from those spiritual forces of evil. But I don't think that's what the author has in mind. Instead, I think the whole argument of Hebrews 9 is related to the day of atonement. Starting all the way back in verse 7. The high priest enters the most holy place only once a year. That's the day of atonement. And not without taking blood, which he offers first for his own sins and then the sins of the people. Which is why verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. Why does he appear in the presence of God? Verse 24 says, On our behalf. So who defiles heaven? We do. Steve Thiel does. You do. It's our sin that's the problem. Because we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6. And we're welcome before the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16. So we're the ones who defile heaven. You know, as I think about John 14 and Jesus' statement that in God's mansion there are many rooms and how he goes to prepare a place for us. That where he is, there we may be also. I have this picture that comes to my mind of this massive estate 
like one of those homes in Downton Abbey, right? You know what I'm saying? These massive estates. If you have no idea what Downton Abbey is, then think of Newport, Rhode Island, this massive home, beautiful home with marble floors, oversized stairwells, massive tapestries, walls of books, so absolutely beautiful and ornate and immaculately clean, so perfectly, spotlessly clean. But around this grand estate is mud as far as the eye can see. And there's people playing in it, including me. Until one day I'm pulled out of the muck and the mire and I make my way up to the front door of this beautiful mansion and I knock. And the owner of the estate answers. And I say to him, can I please come in? Can I eat with you and dine with you and stay with you and be with you for all eternity? And God responds, to my utter astonishment, of course you can. And please don't worry about the mess. My son will take care of that. Who defiles heaven? We do. Our sin does. It's our problem. Now just a side note, because if you get that, then you'll understand while judgmentalism is such a problem. Comparing ourselves to others is such a problem because we're all just a bunch of messy, muddy, sinful, wretched people who have responded to Christ's glorious appeal when he said to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He could have easily said, come to me, all who are dirty and defiled, and I will cleanse you from your sin. That's the glory of the gospel. We're all just dirty, wicked sinners, cleansed by grace. So there's absolutely no place for judgmentalism. No place for thinking that we're somehow better than the person next to us. That we're somehow not quite as dirty as they are. Let me also just say this. If you're on the other side of the equation, thinking you're somehow too dirty, too messy, too muddy, too sinful and wretched to be cleansed by the finished work of Christ, then you've also got a misunderstanding of the gospel because the Lord Jesus's superior sacrifice is more than sufficient to cleanse any sinner from any sin and the author of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear look at what he says verse 24 for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Oh, grab a hold of that phrase, on our behalf. Because it doesn't matter how sinful you are, Christ can cleanse you. Christ can make you whiter than snow. Praise God that he can. But the author continues, 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Christ, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Now, what does the writer mean when he says, since the foundation of the world? Well, if Christ would have followed the pattern of the Old Testament priests and the Day of Atonement, then he would have had to die yearly. And since his sacrifice and his blood cover sin, reaching all the way back to Adam and Eve, and all the way forward to the last elect person who will respond to the good news of the gospel, all the way back, all the way forward, that's a lot of sinners. <laughs> and that's a lot of sin. So if more than one sacrifice is required, and Jesus had to offer himself repeatedly, then he would have absolutely had to start all the way back at the foundation of the world. Because his cleansing work would never, ever be finished. I mean, that's millions upon millions of people. Trillions upon trillions of sin. So if they had to be atoned for on a yearly basis, it would never be finished. You understand, that's the incredible glory of Jesus' statement from the cross. It is finished. It is done. Once and done to put away all sin for all time. Which is summarized so gloriously at the end of verse 26. Look at what the author says. But as it is, here's the glorious truth of the gospel. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So let's walk through these phrase by phrase, starting with number two, once for all. Verse 26 says he appeared once for all. So Jesus did his great work of atonement one time, not repeatedly, once and once only. And the whole point is his sacrifice is so great that there's no need for it to be repeated. He does not need to suffer repeatedly. Not for all the redeemed people in the history of the world to be cleansed. From all of their sin. That's how great he is. Which doesn't mean that it wasn't horrific. No, it was absolutely horrible. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus endured the cross. And that he despised the shame. So it was terrible. And absolutely shamed the Lord Jesus. It shamed him to be mocked. Shamed him to be spit on. Shamed him to be made fun of. A crown of thorns upon his head. Purple robe around his neck. It shamed him that the people yelled and screamed, you saved others. Why can't you save yourself? It was horrific. He endured it. And he was shamed in the process. But it's not repeated. It's once and done. That's why Hebrews 12:2 says Jesus endured the cross, he despised the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because his work was finished once for all. And what specifically did Jesus accomplish? Well, verse 26 says that he appeared once for all. Number 3, to put away sin. I want you to see the glory in the way the author says this. 
Because he does not say to put away sins, plural. Even though we're crystal clear, we're talking about millions and millions of people and trillions and trillions of sin. From all the way back from Adam and Eve to the end of the age. But he doesn't say to put away sins. He says to put away sin. Singular. So the glory of Christ's sacrifice is seen in the fact that sin is not dealt with in parts and pieces, but as a whole. That's why we sing. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. We often sing that thinking about ourselves. But now just think of millions and millions of sinners and trillions and trillions of sin. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So it's as if Christ takes all the sin of every sinner who believes in Jesus, past, present, and future. He grabs a hold of it and he rolls it up as one big lump sum and then he pays for it once and done when he sacrificed himself on the cross. Number four, by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus did not take the blood of another into God's presence. He took his own blood. Not only was his sacrifice once for all to put away sin as a whole, but it was the sacrifice of the most valuable person in the universe, Christ himself, the Son of God, which is critically important because if you ever think or are tempted to think that your sin is too dirty to be cleansed, then you've got to ask yourself, which is, which is greater, the dirt and defilement of my sin or the infinite value and virtue of the blood of Christ to cleanse me? So is my sin more terrible or is his sacrifice more valuable? And make sure you don't blaspheme when you answer. Because Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater. Last but not least, number five, at the end of the age. Verse 26 says that he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this might sound a little confusing because Jesus' death happened 2,000 years ago. And the book of Hebrews was written around 65 AD. And yet the Bible repeatedly refers to this whole time as the end of the age. In fact, Peter says we're in the last times. Paul says that we're in the last days. John goes even further and he says that we're in the last hours. So the consistent pattern of the New Testament is that we're living in the last days, including the author of Hebrews who started his sermon by saying, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. So you need to understand, history came to a climax at Jesus' death on the cross, which was the single most important event in all of history. And the only event left on God's redemptive calendar is Christ's return. So that's all that is left. That's all that is remaining. 
So we literally live between the first and second coming of Christ with no more signs expected, no more warnings to be given, which means we need to be ready for it. We need to be waiting well for his return, which moves us from salvation already to number two, salvation Not yet. Let me read verses 27 and 28 again. The author says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The first thing you have to notice is there's a comparison going on here. And the comparison is between us and Christ. So A, the reality for every person and B, the reality for Christ. That's why the author says, look at verse 27, just as it is appointed for man, verse 28, so Christ. So there's clearly a comparison. And it's a comparison between something that we do, right? We die and face judgment and something that he does, he dies And he saves us from judgment. So there's this parallel that takes place between our experience and Christ's experience. But the parallel is only there in order to highlight how our lives are utterly dependent on his life. And how his death profoundly impacts our life and our eternal experience. So the parallel highlights how great Jesus is. Another thing these verses do is they force us to think about the most important issues in life. Namely, death and judgment. So let's start with A, the reality for every person. Each and every one of us will experience one death and one judgment. That's exactly what the author says, that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, two specific words that I want to focus in on here as we think about death are the words appointed and once. Verse 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once. So here's a great question to ask. Who made the appointment? I surely didn't make the appointment. Not with death, right? I mean, I make all sorts of appointments all the time, as I'm sure you do. I make appointments with people. I make appointments with my mechanic. I make an appointment with the airlines. I'm happy to make all of those appointments. I'm even willing to make appointments that I don't like, including with the dentist. I have to go to the dentist tomorrow at 11 a.m. I hate the dentist. I'm the biggest baby in the world when it comes to the dentist. And I make sure the dentist knows that. So the first time I go into my new dentist, I sit in the chair and I say to the lady, and if she's a new lady, I say it every time I go to the dentist, I say, you seem like a very wonderful person. I'm sure you're delightful. Just want to let you know, I, I hate being here. And I really don't want to talk to you. 
Not because you're not a nice person. Outside of here, talk to you all day long. But while I'm here, I'm just going to be literally counting the seconds until I'm out of here. I'm such a big baby, and the dentist knows it, that the last time I went to the dentist, they numbed half the side of my face. (laughs) I'm not joking. For one cavity, they're like, just numb this guy up so that he doesn't feel anything. I couldn't feel my nose for over four hours after I got out of the dentist. Right? I think it's clear. I don't like the dentist. But I can make that appointment, right? I'm willing to make even that appointment. But I would never make this appointment. Not with death. Who makes that appointment? God makes that appointment. When Adam sinned in the garden, death entered the world. And God appointed the curse of death to every single one of Adam's descendants. That's why Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Now why does that matter? It matters because death is not just the natural end of life. But instead, death is the result of sin. And death is the consequences of us breaking God's command, which he warned us about. And therefore, death happens under God's sovereign control. That's why Psalm 139 says, In God's book were written every one of our days, the days that are ordained to us individually, before there was but one of them. So God knows your birth date and God knows your death date before there were any of those dates. God sets the appointment and God makes sure that you don't miss it. So God plans it and God brings it to pass which I think should liberate us to live for the glory of God and to have right thinking about life just like Job did. Do you remember Job's kids? Job chapter 1 verse 13. It tells us there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. So it was a good day, a nice day, a fun day, a family day until a wind came And blew the house down. And all the kids died. Which is absolutely tragic. I'm not minimizing that that's tragic and extremely difficult to navigate in life. But what does Job say about it? How does he react to the situation? He says, Job 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the Lord sets the appointment and the Lord makes sure that we don't miss it. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, because there's no absurd, random, meaningless events that take place in this life, according to the Bible, including your death. Nothing happens outside God's hands. 
Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's sovereign will. So all things, including your birth date and your death date, are governed by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God. I think we want to have that clear in our minds before the tragedy comes. It allows us to not, not stop hurting, not stop having a hard time because it's difficult, but it helps us to have a right perspective on what's taking place. So yes, it is appointed for us to die, but you can rest assured that it's not going to be the result of man. It's not going to be the result of Satan. It's certainly not the result of fate. It's not the result of disease. It's not the result of cancer. It's not the result of your kidney failing. Right? Those might be the circumstances. But who makes the final choice? God does. God sets the appointment. And here's the good news. It's only going to happen one time. <laughs> right? I think that's encouraging. Verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. You don't have to go through that twice. Just once. Which means there's no such thing as reincarnation. You don't have to worry about coming back again, either as a higher ranking human or a tree frog. You're not coming back just to die again. That only happens once. But it's also equally true that you're not going to just die and that's it. Because that's the other's perspective you hear all the time from the people at work, right? That our lives are just like a computer screen. So when you pull the plug, that's it, it's over. Well, that's obviously not the case either, is it? Verse 27 says, first comes death then comes the judgment. So death is not the end of our existence. We're not merely physical beings, right? But instead, we're made up of both a body and a soul. So when we die, we don't just lose consciousness, cease to exist, and then decompose in the ground. But instead, first we die, and then after that, we face God in the final judgment. So be clear, this is not what happens to us immediately after we die, but instead what happens to us at the end of the age when Christ returns. That's what he's talking about. And Hebrews does not leave us in the dark as to what that's going to look like. Instead, Hebrews chapter 10, this is coming right in the weeks ahead, verses 26 to 27. It says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, so the good news of the gospel... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's a terrifying thing. A, a fearful thing, a horrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the reality for every person. That there's one death and there's one judgment. That we're all going to have to face it. So the author's point seems crystal clear. He so desperately wants us all to deal with the most important things in life. 
He wants us to grab a hold of these realities, right? That there is death and there is judgment. And he wants us to think deep about them, long and hard about those things, because those two things, death and judgment, will have the greatest impact on the way in which we live our lives today. Assuming we're even thinking about them. Because it seems clear to me, even in my own life, that so often we think very little about what matters most, and we think very much about what matters little. Let me be clear. What matters most is the reality that we will all die and we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. That matters the most. That's eternal. That has eternal significance, eternal value, eternal importance. And what matters very little is the NCAA tournament. (laughs) That matters little. The car that you drive matters little. The house that you live in matters little. The specific job that you have matters little. Your dream vacation matters little. Most people think very little about what matters most and very much about what matters little. And I don't want you to be like that. The Word of God is trying to help you to be wise this morning because wise people prioritize their lives. So they focus on what matters most and they minor on what is of little importance, which impacts the way we live every single day of our lives and in particular, how we respond to the Lord Jesus. Verse 28, second half of the comparison has everything to do with be the reality for Christ. And notice the incredible encouragement that is here for us this morning in the fact that Christ joins us both in death and in judgment. So there's a parallel. But the differences are infinite and incredible and highlight the glory of Christ. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. When does he appear a second time? At the judgment, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You have to see the difference in the wording between us and Christ. Verse 27 says that we die. We die once. Verse 28 says Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of the many. So Jesus doesn't die. He's not killed. His life is not taken away from him. But he offers it up as a sacrifice in order to bear the sins of the many. That's why Jesus said all the way back in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, he clarifies, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. What exactly does he accomplish with this one offering? He bears the sins of the many. You have to understand that in the ears of the original audience, right, Jewish Christians, this would have been an automatic connection back to Isaiah 53. I mean, listen to Isaiah 53, even as you look at this verse. Isaiah 53, 4 says, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Verse 10, he was put to grief in order to make an offering for guilt. Lastly, verse 12, he bore the sin of the many in order to make intercession for the transgressors. Do you understand? Jesus' death isn't anything like our death. I mean, yes, our death was appointed and his death was appointed. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So he was crucified at the appointed time. And yet he didn't just die. Instead, he offered up his life bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Why? That he might bear the sins of the many. That's the glory of the gospel. That Jesus died, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, so that we might be forgiven, or to use the analogy from earlier, that we as a bunch of messy, muddy, sin-stained people might be cleansed. From all of our sin, washed whiter than snow and welcomed into his presence for all eternity. Come on in. Don't worry about the mess. My son will take care of all of that. Because that's true, it will radically change our experience at the judgment. Because judgment is coming. There will be a final judgment. Number two, one salvation. Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the glory of this verse is it spans Christ's first coming and his second coming. Because he's already come and he's already offered himself once for all to bear the sins of the many. That salvation was absolutely sufficient. So he doesn't have to do anything else to pay the price for our iniquities or to remove the guilt of sin. That's why the author says not to deal with sin. That's ready done. That's finished. Well, so then what happens at the second coming? Well, it's the final application of that one salvation that he purchased during his first coming at the cross when he sacrificed himself for our sin. So when the fury of fire comes and Christ's adversaries are consumed, he will be right there protecting his people, securing our salvation, protecting us from the horror of God's eternal wrath. So yes, final judgment is coming. And yes, the Lord Jesus will be there. Number three, securing our salvation forever. I want to appeal to you. On the basis of the clear teaching of Scripture. That A, judgment is coming. Do you know that this morning? Judgment is is coming. You could be sitting here thinking, you know, that's 2,000 years ago. He's talking about all sorts of stuff. Who knows? You know? No. Judgment is coming. And the language of the Bible confirms that that judgment is going to be 
horrific. And it tells us that all over the place. Chapter 10, verse 27 says it's a fury of fire. That it will consume the adversaries. So anyone who is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ will be consumed. Verse 31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 2 Thessalonians 1 says the Lord Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on all those who do not know God or who do not respond to the good news of the gospel. So then what should you do? You should respond to the good news of the gospel, right? I don't want that. I want to know God. I want, to, I want to understand this good news. Oh, I appeal to you. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Accept and embrace. Acknowledge and own the fact that apart from Christ, you're a messy, muddy, sin-stained wretch who's been playing out in the massive mud field called the world. Just like the rest of us. But this morning, I pray that you would hear the Savior calling. Come to me, all who are dirty and defiled, muddy, wretched sinners, and I will cleanse you. Do you remember the leper? Mark chapter 2. Leper said to Jesus, if you are willing, make me clean. Jesus immediately said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Hear the Savior calling and offering. I will cleanse you from your sin. I will wash you whiter than snow. Saying to you this morning, you're not too messy. You're not too muddy. You're not too sinful to be cleansed. My work is sufficient. And it is finished. It is done. To you I offer salvation. Now and forevermore. Jesus is more than sufficient to cleanse any sinner from any sin. But you have to come to him. And you have to recognize the judgment is coming. And I'm just warning you. There are no more warnings. There's no more signs. You have no idea when he's coming. Are you going to make it home today? Oh, let's be honest. Every single one of us assumes that, don't we? How about tomorrow? We assume that. How many days do you assume? Do you just have it banked in that you're making it to 80? What's the number? Whatever that number is in your mind, whatever that assumption is, I'm just trying to tell you, you're not guaranteed any of that. Judgment is coming. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Let me just push it a little bit further. Not only is judgment coming, Jesus is coming. 
We're in the last age, and he is coming. Verse 28 makes it clear. He will save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ didn't die to purify his bride just so that we could coast. No, he calls and commands them to live in radical obedience to him, which is really, really hard, but it causes us all the more to long for his return. So we should be eagerly waiting. We should be longing and pleading, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now remember where we started this morning. I asked you the question, are you waiting well for Christ's return? Here's the question you should be asking, that I'd expect you to be asking. How can I know for sure that my sins are cleansed and that I will be safe and secure in the judgment? Here's the answer, according to verse 28. Make sure that you're believing in Christ. Make sure that you're trusting in Christ. Make sure that you're resting in Christ. But make sure that you're doing that in such a way that it causes your heart and your affections to long for his return. Which means that there's a phony faith out there, isn't there? There's a phony faith, I would suggest, amongst the people of God. It's the phony faith when we think about all these things and we just consider it a fire insurance policy. Do you know what I'm saying? We just want the get out of hell free card. And I would suggest that it's Evident and obvious when that's the case. Because that's when people would prefer that God just put off Christ's return as long as possible. So that they have the time that they want to do the things that they would like to do. Like graduate from high school then college, get a good job, get married, have kids, and be able to put in and have a place that is nice and comfortable, easy and relaxing, have a long life with a long retirement where you can play as much golf as you'd like, go fishing as often as you want, enjoy the grandkids, take that dream vacation you've always wanted. Look at verse 28. He's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm just here to tell you, if you have a fire insurance policy, you're in trouble. You're not saved if you think like that. Not according to verse 28. Because Jesus is coming back to save a people who actually want him, actually desire him, long for him, treasure him above everything else. He's coming to save a people who are eagerly waiting for him. So I want you to test yourself just to make sure that you're really in the faith by asking yourself the question, are you really longing for Christ's return? Do you really want him to come back? Are you waiting eagerly, longingly to be with him for all eternity? 
Or let me put it this way. If you die and go to heaven and he's not there, is that going to bother you? Is he optional when you think about heaven? Do you see the radical difference? We want to be a people who are longing for him, desiring his return. How do we do this? How do we cultivate an affection for him? Well, I would suggest it's got to start by us being people of the word that we understand death and judgment. This is coming. That we can have a better understanding for who Jesus is. Hebrew is unpacking who Jesus is in a profound way. Are you delighting in Hebrews? Are you delighting in seeing that he's your great high priest? That he offered himself once for all to make atonement for your sin? That he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Does that just make you excited about him? Man, I can't wait to see him. I long to be with him. You know, the other way that I think causes us to long for his return is by being obedient, by being faithful to what he calls us to do. Why does that cause us to be longing for his return? Because faithfulness is hard. (laughs) Is it not? We're in the muck and the mire all the time. And it's very, very difficult. And if you're faithful in that, laboring in the vineyard, sharing the gospel, pleading with people to come to faith, you're tired. And you're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you see how those two things go together? If you're delighting in the things of the kingdom, you're longing for his return. If you're delighting in the things of the world, then you don't want him to come back anytime soon. May we be a people who are waiting well for Christ's return. You know, they have apps that you can actually dial in when you think you might die, and it has a countdown timer. You know, okay, so so just think of the two ways you could think about that. This is all the time I have left to get as much out of this world as I possibly can. That would be one way. Or this is when he's coming back. And I can't wait for it. Isn't that what we do when we have a loved one that's gone? We mark the calendar. Coming home. Boy, now you start thinking about those days differently. Boy, I hope I don't make it to 80. 70 would be okay. 60's good. 50's better. I'm 46. I'm okay tomorrow. (laughs) I really am. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I long for your return. I can't wait to be in your home, in your presence. That where you are, I will be also, and it'll be glorious. Oh, may we be a people who are waiting well, longing for his return. Allow me to pray. Lord, we don't think like that, and we confess it as sin because it's wrong. Lord, we're so prone to be delighting in this world, and there's lots of good things in this world. You've given us this world to delight in and enjoy many blessings, life and breath and every good thing. 
but not the greatest thing. So Lord, help us to be people who are wise, who will prioritize the right things. People who are longing for the Lord Jesus to come back. And may we pray with great diligence, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do that good work in our minds and in our hearts for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.